How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Black and Gay Back in the Day. We're bringing to life the archive of images of Black LGBTQ plus life in Britain, from the 1970s to the early noughties. Brown skin beauty Fair fine future I'm Mark Thompson. I'm an activist and health promotion specialist and I built this archive with the journalist and writer Jason Okendaya. Deep dark wisdom In this episode, we are looking at a photograph that holds so much history around the power of community. A black and white picture of a woman angled from below. It is slightly out of focus, but you are drawn in by the woman who is wearing flared trousers with a white belt and a polo shirt. Her right arm is bent with her hips popping to the left as she leans on sound system speakers that pile up high to the ceiling. The woman, who we know to be Yvonne Taylor, is looking directly at you and wearing glasses that reflect the flash of the camera. When you look back in history, community-run collectives are often the backbone of any movement. They are places where people can come together. They are also the roots for change. In this episode, I asked community organiser Jewel Foster to find out more about the history behind this amazing picture. Um, I'm looking at this picture, a very tall person looking right down through the lens of the camera. A way that it's like relaxed, but also kind of holds a lot of power, I guess. And then the photo is taken from a lower angle as well, which like makes her seem kind of like taller and more like, I don't know, gives her a sense of authority, I guess. And she's leaning up against a bunch of musical equipment like a stereo, and then stuff that I don't know what that is because I was born in the 90s. There's one of those, those kind of like room dividers that's made out of beads, which I remember my nan's house had. And I'm not sure if she's wearing glasses or sunglasses. Uh, very cool. 
They look very cool um, from the way that they're standing. Um, and also just the fact that, I guess the fact that they're so comfortable with their photo being taken and that someone is taking a photo of them in this way. It's very relaxed. Um, yeah, I think it's quite a powerful picture. My name is Jewel Foster and I make music and set up community events. Uh, this picture of some is of someone called Yvonne Taylor, who I think started Systematic. I've started to do some research on Systematic and Yvonne Taylor. So Systematic was a lesbian-run sound system. Um, they put on monthly nights in South London. I think I would have gone definitely gone to one of these nights. So I read these two articles about Systematic and they spoke a bit about the how difficult it was being a black queer woman in the 70s and 80s and how these nights kind of started a community and provided a sense of uh, safety and how the importance of dance within our communities. It was really cool finding out about this. I think a lot of queer people in general, like probably all over, but like in London, we speak about the fact that there's not a lot of um, lesbian spaces or lesbian owned spaces and systematic wasn't something that I'd heard about before so it's like an interesting topic because I guess it speaks to like the limited documentation and archive black owned spaces but also I'm sure like Yvonne could talk a lot about the kind of history of queer and black owned spaces and one why they're so needed but also why they're so lacking as well. I think that unlike with cishet white people, there isn't such a variety of spaces so that it can be harder to find community and it can be harder to connect with other POCs and other queer people. And I think that with the with the community events that I've been doing um, and trying to get like QTI, POC, queer, trans and intersex people of colour, uh, they're like chilled events, they're not about, uh, so it's not dancing and it's like talking and finding community is really important in in these events. And I have, I think I have been hearing that it can be difficult to find these spaces or to, um, to integrate yourself in one's spaces because of the fact that they can seem kind of inaccessible. And I think that is part of the, part of the reason is that um, they're such like niche spaces. I think also from the picture, it's not like the photos that you see of club nights or like, you know, queer, black, ran club nights because it has like, I don't know, so much more of a like familial quality, I guess. She's dressed very like casually. It's, it looks like a picture that was taken in a home, I guess. I'm looking forward to finding out from Yvonne what the story behind this picture was um, and where it was taken. I'm on my way to meet Yvonne and I'm feeling a bit nervous. 
<laughs> but also excited. Um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about yeah running a running a community space, all of the positives and the kind of hardships I guess that came with that. I'm excited to hear about her experience and I guess also like learn about it as well. Hey, how you doing? Hello. <laughs> nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I've got this photo of you. It's this one. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, that's um, that was the start of my troubles, I think. <laughs> Gosh, that photo was taken when I was about 14 and a half. Um, I'd gone, my mother lived in New York and myself and her sister had, had gone to New York to visit. But that picture was taken at my um, then mother's boyfriend's house who had a big thing about music and that was my um, music uh, was really the kind of thing that I connected to with all the dysfunctionality that was going off around me. Music kind of paved the way for me to kind of find a sort of safe place. And that guy had that taped tape reel and um, he was letting me um, just record some music while he was out working that day. Um, and then my sister came along and just took that picture and I think it kind of epitomises the point in my life where I thought, yeah, there's life, there's, there's, there's potential you know, to be happy out there. Was it um, an older or a younger sister that took the picture? Uh, my sister is two two years younger than me, so she was she would have been twelve, and um, it's probably about the only decent picture she's ever taken of me. <laughs> I'm quite happy to tell her that too. <laughs> I think it's it's funny that you say that because it looks from the photo like she looks up to you, or like respects you um, from the way that the photo is taken. Oh gosh, I hadn't really looked at that in that way before, but let me have a look at that again. Um, so, yeah, that would make a great deal of sense. Thanks for bringing that to my attention because I've never thought of that. But, yeah, it's a great picture, I think. Um, and I look happy in that picture. If you see all the other pictures of me around that age in sunny old Nottingham, I'm maybe not so happy. Mm. So, um, I, yeah. Why were you so much happier in New York than well, Nottingham? It was very rare for my mum to have a boyfriend that like even, even wanted to be near and this guy was actually really, really cool. My mother wasn't around very much because she had to work, apparently. But he would say to me every day, right, I'm going to go to work. When I come back, what do you want to do? And it always involved going somewhere to listen to music. But one of the things I wanted to do is this 14-year-old think there's something not quite straight about me. I, I wanted to go to Greenwich Village, and he took me there, so... He'd take me there the night before, so now I'm feeling like 10 foot tall. So looking like 10, I'm feeling 10 foot tall. Um, and so that I think that's that was a, it was like a realisation that actually as a young black queer woman, it, it, was, it, it wasn't really going down very well in Nottingham, which is the city I'm from. But in New York, I suddenly saw lots of people that kind of I could relate to. So it was a game changer. And you knew about that when you were in Nottingham? Oh, God, yeah. I've a strange child, as my parents used to say, since I was about five. Um, 
Diaspora. You were longing for Greenwich Village. Well, I didn't know about <laughs> Greenwich Village, but I, I kind of knew about my sexuality and, I, and I'd read about uh, Greenwich Village. Oh, actually, no, my stepbrother told me about Greenwich Village and he said you should go and check out Greenwich Village and Harlem. And so that's how I got to check those two places out. So there's like a tape deck or something. Oh, God, yeah, it's antique. <laughs> it's an antique. It was a reel to reel. I mean, you know, you could make, you could put hours and hours of music on there. I mean, I didn't fill that up. You know, he'd already started it and stuff, and then I've somewhere in, in that reel to reel, I don't know where it is now, but it's somewhere in that reel to reel. There's at least five hours of something that I've kind of like, you know, it was very antiquated. It was, <laughs> but, you know, it worked at the time. It was pretty, as it's antiquated now, but at the time it was considered to be kind of, you know, a bit out there, especially if you, you know, we're some poor black person living in the neighbourhood. So, you know, that's kind of what they spent the money on, really, clothes and music. What age were you when you started going out then? Well, I, I my first official kind of club was at a, was at a um, socialist workers uh, youth club party. Well, it, was a, it was a club, but it was in the youth club. And uh, you had to be 13 to go. And I managed to get my sewing teacher. Uh, it was a bit naive to sign a piece of paper to say that I was 13. Don't think she realised what she was saying. <laughs> and so I ended up going to this this disco. You know, we had a bottle of Coke in our hands. That was a treat. And uh, we were like playing like we were adults, I suppose, because we'd seen all the adults in our houses, respective homes. Yeah dancing at the Shabin or the blues, whatever you yeah. So it was we were kind of we were kind of replicating that. And and of course because it was a, a mixed youth club in terms of uh, ethnicity, you know, we also had some pop songs. And that stuff. was in Nottingham? This was in Sunny Old Nottingham, yeah. A lot happened in Nottingham but not enough to keep me there. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that so the the discos were like mixed ethnicity. So in Nottingham in, in the late 60s? I mean, it's kind of, yeah, because when I came to London, I, when I came to London, I, I, I did notice that there was a much more departmentalised, sectioned off communities because there was a lot more of you. But um, in Nottingham, the communities were large, but not, not large enough to take over a whole neighbourhood. So I grew up in a uh, no blacks, no tox, no Irish neighbourhood. And literally it was, you know, all... all uh, what were known as West Indians then, and Irish people that lived in a neighbourhood. Then as we worked our way up the uh, housing chain, and my dad married my um, stepmother, who was a white, low-middle-class woman, who owned her own house. I went to a better school. I learned to read. <laughs> I learned to write. And that incorporated black Asians and white people kind of like living as next door neighbours and going to the same schools and going to the, the same youth clubs. When did you start Systematic? Gosh, Systematic. So when I eventually left home, it was I was 18 and then uh, joined the army. I did that for almost seven years. And then I came out of the army in, uh, 83, 84, went to Brighton, ran a couple of club nights there, and then after about nine months came to London and really didn't like the uh, the women's scene. Well, actually, I didn't like any of the gay scene. It was all a bit dull and a bit droll. The music was a bit naff. Um, but 
I was I was seeing this woman who took me to a dinner party and I ended up being at this dinner party. This woman that I was dating was a white woman. But when I went to the dinner party, it was three other black women and they were having this meeting, which is what I'd been taken along to. A friend obviously knew that I liked to DJ and so they were looking for a DJ to, to work with this new concept that they had, which was to run this club that was primarily for all women, anybody that defined themselves as a woman, black, white, Asian, trans, it didn't really matter. So that's what the club was about because for me to go out or for us all to go out anywhere, it was it was difficult because um, we weren't really welcome at these clubs anyway and the music wasn't really. And so if you were, you know, if you'd had a different musical experience, there was no, it, it wasn't gonna be found. So we, you know, as part of this collective, just four of us, we. We just decided that we would set up this club, and and it and it probably was the thing that made my arrival in London because I hadn't been here very long. I think I'd been here about two months. Uh, didn't have a job, so you know I could put my whole heart into actually being part of this collective. And um, yeah, so once a month, every every month for almost nine years, we um, we would lug these huge speaker boxes and other equipment into the back of either my car or my friend's car and uh, set up this party on a Saturday night. You know, when there'd be food, we'd have a, you know, we'd have, generally speaking, there'd be a vegetarian curry and a chicken curry. And there'd be food, there'd be drinks. And South London Centre was pretty pivotal because it had a, it had a huge room that was like could hold about two hundred and fifty women, and effectively it was also soundproofed, which at the time was like a real plus. So it meant that people passing by couldn't really hear the music, although Acre Lane wasn't a thoroughfare, so it was fairly safe as well. Um, yeah, it's probably one of my it, yeah we did do exceptionally well with it. Except, you know, then I'd need, like, two days to recover. <laughs> Were you hearing from uh, partygoers there that there was, like, a need for it? I don't think I realised the, the importance of that particular club until much later. A majority of the women that attended Systematic would, I'm more than likely to say, you know, they came to London, you know, in the 80s and... There wasn't really that much for them to do. And then they came across this party. From what my, my understanding of the feedback that I've got, it was that it was it was a, it for lot for lots of women of colour and and for other women, it was a bit of a game changer in, in terms of how we all met each other and so that, you know, because there was this segregation in London that we hadn't quite experienced because there's not enough of us elsewhere. But in London it was it would you know, the kind of parties that were available to women of colour would have been private parties in people's houses. Historically, there are, you know, there are women out there that will say that that's, that club probably saved them from going down a dark hole, which sounds a bit arrogant, but that's kind of really the truth of that, when you don't have anything much to, there was not, nothing else to compare it with, but at least we had something. I have a question. That's a more general question, vague question. Why is dance so important? Well, I know it sounds really silly, right? but like, it's kind of like 
dancing is something that m most people have done throughout throughout the generations where we've had access to music. So, you know, you generally go to a, some sort of dance, whether it's in the 40s or the 50s, whatever. You go to a dance, you know, and you kind of like shake a little leg. And you can see people, you know, with their euphoria. They're kind of like, oh, gosh, I can just let go. And, and, and that got better and better. I mean, certainly for me as a, as a, a child of, of Jamaicans, that, you know, I grew up in a household where when people were happiest was when they were having a little dance and they were listening to their music from back home. For me, I, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. However, the one legacy that they did leave me was that they, they were all happiest when they were in some place that was playing music. It's almost like my parents came in in the 50s, believe you me. They needed something to kind of forget that they were working in, you know, in a cigarette factory, in players or whatever it was, or boots factory, whatever they're working, Monday to Friday having to deal with that racist abuse day in, day out, and then come home. Is that this the only thing they had to keep them sane? Sometimes when you know, my friends are in a bit of a swishy space, I just need to take them somewhere where they can just forget about it for half an hour. And back in the day, that's all we had. We didn't, you know, counselling, therapy, didn't really, you know, we just had friends and music, so we had music to relate to. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. I have a funny story that's like counter to what you're saying about therapy. I remember when I was like in a period where I was really sad and I was going to therapy and I was telling my therapist that I just wanted to go dancing. And she was like, what does that represent to you? And she was like trying to therapize my need to go dancing. And I was like, Sorry. I just want to dance. I want to go dancing. It doesn't represent anything. I just want to dance. Yeah, it's kind of, I want a night off. I just want, I mean, that's I kind of. I just want to shake my booty. Yeah, that's that, exactly. I mean, that, you know, as a kid, that's what I did. I danced because, well, what else could I do? My parents were just a complete nightmare. And, you know, adults at that time had their own stuff going off. So it was like, what else are you going to do? It's the one place you kind of like got some familiarity, you know. That's the, that's the power of music for you. It's like, you know, it is. It's the thing that you kind of go, 
I don't want to talk to my therapist. And say that now, I couldn't say that back then. I just want to have a minute to myself where, you know, nothing's going to intrude. So, yeah, I can relate to that. That's quite... <laughs> It makes, that makes me feel better now. So I'm, I, just, I keep saying this. I'm just anybody really understand what I'm talking about? What and was it like in London, like outside of systematic and living in London well, back then? Outside of the uh, the party, which was probably my safest little genre, there was a lot of uh, homophobia still. You know. Obviously, the mid-80s, we were looking at sort of like the, the advent of AIDS, HIV. But for me, on an individual basis, living my everyday life in uh, in South London as well, yeah, it was difficult for a lot of us. I mean, I you weren't holding your partner's hand. You weren't making it obvious, although it clearly was obvious by my style of dress or something. But, you know, you kind of had to be mindful of the hostilities around you. And even getting work was kind of like, you know, you were kind of forced down that route of liberal local authorities, you know, dashing out jobs to people. I, yeah, I worked for them, I, I hated it. So I'd, I had lots of difficulties with, the, with getting work. For me, it was a difficult phase. It was difficult because whilst I was didn't have anybody to kind of worry about offending in terms of family but you know for a lot of people that there was a lot of stuff around family living in London and so their lives were, were kind of led in a, in a bit of a shadow you know under under the radar when I think about the 80s I kind of go what was good about it and actually what was good about it was that as the 80s start the end the end of the 80s came we were starting to get more choices of things to do there was you know there was community groups, we've got the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre, Bellingham Road, Peckham was was in a, a, a railway arch, but like it was our railway arch where we could go and talk, just play pool, talk, do you know, everyday things that you might want to do. Loved it, absolutely loved it. And for some, it's still difficult now, in my generation certainly, Back in the day, it was really, really bad. You just didn't want your brother, or you didn't want to see your brother and sister because nobody knew. You weren't really, nobody was really out in the community as such, or very few of us, I should say, generalise like that. You know, I, I mean, I remember I had a friend who was like, she met this woman and, and you know, they they met at, at some talk group and then they started dating and this woman hadn't bothered to say to her, she's got three kids and it was like, the, you know, the whole kind of drama that that created. And I'm thinking, she's got three kids. It's like, you know, does that mean, say, she can't be part of the community because she's got three kids? It was it, So we were going through a, what I'd call a transitioning period where we, we didn't know what we were supposed to be. We didn't know what the rules were supposed to be. We, we knew we were kind of breaking some rules, but, like, other rules we were kind of adhering to because that's how you're conditioned, if that makes sense. So it... I would say life in the 80s was a bit of a twister coming out and then and then having the support of my family helped me to 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 stand my ground whereas and I didn't have kids and I didn't you know I didn't have anything that I was going to potentially lose when we were going to these feminist meetings and things I I you know for me a lot of what was being said at the time at the time that 
I couldn't really relate to because I'm like, this might be what it happens in your world, but as a black woman, this isn't, this, I can't even relate to what you're talking about. So there was a lot of, um, and not just for myself, there's a lot of conflicts between the sort of, you know, what was deemed the right thing to do and, and, and the right thing to campaign about and, the, the, you know, which demos we should go on. And, and I'm like, yeah, the brother's just been, been shot by a cop in Brixton, mate. I think that's the demo that I want to go on. You know, it, it felt safe to be part of a group, but, you know, what what group? That kind of stuff. But I also, I, I'm interested in meeting a, a community. And I don't think we've, you know, when I say the word community, that kind of gives you the idea that there's like this sort of togetherness or there's no togetherness. I guess you spoke a lot about like isolation and you also said before that um, Systematic saved a lot of people from going down a dark space. Um, so would you say then in the 80s, was there a kind of like rise of community spaces? And I guess if you could just talk about what, what community means well, to you. There, there was, I mean, towards the end of, sort of mid 80s towards the end, that we, you know, like I said earlier on, we had a black lesbian and gay centre in Bellingham Road. That was a big plus. You know, we had there's been gay centre in Farringdon in the nineties. We had several women's centres scattered around. I don't think any of them exist anymore, but we had several women's centre. And then we had other people kind of organising individual things and bringing outside influences like from America into it. And I think that's when the community starts to realise there's like there's yeah, there's 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 more to our lives than, than what we've kind of got ourselves into here. I'm not saying that America's got the answer, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm I am saying that it it opened a lot of people's eyes to kind of like we're not we're not in a we might be a minority here, but actually we weren't a minority because once we started doing something slightly different than the club scene and there were all these opportunities for people to come and just sit down and chat about different things, women and children and, you know, whatever. It, you know, it, it, it meant that there was space to do that. There was a sense of community because there was nothing else. There was there was absolutely, you know, there was none, you know, we've diversified now. Now, you know, I mean, if somebody had said to me 35 years ago that, you know, I'll be going to a straight club, essentially straight club, you know, on my Saturday night, I'd have gone, it's never going to happen. You know, so things have evolved. All of these little things kind of like gave us a sense of purpose. Because if all you, if you, if anything you've got to do is go to work, suffer all of that angst from your colleagues, and then then look forward to Friday and Saturday. I mean, it just means that your your life is is lacking in something. You know, we kind of we 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 didn't have any rules, so we had to make it up as we went along. And I think the community then was less fractious than it is now, because I think there's so many different communities. We're not all necessarily talking to each other. Whereas, you know, we would we were much better at talking to each other, even if we didn't really agree with what it was you were, you know, saying. You said also that, yeah, you were just making it all up as you went along because you didn't have anyone leading the way. And I guess I think of that as an important thing when it comes to queer community. Yeah, it, it, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to take that back slightly because we did have we did have some quite significant uh, leaders 
Um, but they were very much our political leaders. Mm. Um, they were our social leaders. And but the thing is, as a as as a community, we would work. So you know, if there was, if there, if you're trying to you know encourage people to kind of think about something in a very political way. Um, it kind of helps if you kind of if you and you want to bring a diverse group, you then need to have something that's going to bring a diverse group, and so that's how we work together. So there were there were there were leaders. I mean, I I didn't see myself particularly as a leader, but I'm sure that somebody would say, well, you know, Yvonne did the social side, and people like Savvy and Veronica and and you know many of us, Dirk. They did the political side, but we we worked together mm. to make sure that we could get as many different types of people to come to that meeting or to come to that debate or to, to, to be on that rally. And when you were in these spaces and creating these spaces and putting on these events, were you thinking... Were you thinking that you were a part of history and did you think about legacy as well? Oh, no. I mean, <laughs> no. No plan whatsoever. I was just, I mean, my philosophy in life is, you know, I, if I put on an event, I want all the people that come to have the best time that they can have. Somebody said to me once about 10 years ago, Yvonne, you've probably done more to move race relations along in terms of, you know, forcing, well not forcing, but getting people into one space that would never normally be in that space. So I, I don't see it, I mean I certainly don't didn't see it as legacy, but as, as I get older I realise the significance of what many of us did without really realising the significance of what we did. Without it being, I guess, kind of a political legacy or history, were any of you thinking we are black queer women and we are existing and we need to be documenting this <laughs> no certainly i wasn't i mean i there are there are there are women out there that were documenting stuff you know the, the women and men actually our community work you know through the black lesbian and gay center i mean veronica messerman veronica mckenzie is a kind of documentary filmmaker she's a filmmaker she's made a few documentaries and one of them covers that whole period of the eighties to sort of early nineties of, you know, what 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 the political agenda was for us as a community at that time. And yeah, they they you know, for those of us that weren't really that wasn't our forte, we were able to convey that to to to, to people like Veronica and Dirk and Savvy, Sharon. I mean, I could reel them all off because they were the ones that went in and battled and wrote the, you know, grant applications, not just for themselves, but, but for people like me, you know, people like, that. We, we, that's not our forte. They, they didn't just take themselves down the road. They, you know, they took other people with them. So I, to me, that's, the community is about making each other feel good about who we are and, and about, you know, making allowances for people's differences.
Hey, Jewel. Hello. So you went out and you met Yvonne. Tell me, how was that? Uh, it was really cool. Yeah, it was really cool to meet somebody who had, I guess, done so much in a really chilled way. It wasn't a big deal to her at the time, and it didn't really seem like to be a big deal to her now. Um, but it was just, yeah, it just happened. I mean, she's lovely, Yvonne, and I've known Yvonne for a while. And, you know, she's run clubs and you know, she's just great, great things in the community. So I'm great that you got to connect with her. So you had this wonderful conversation. Um, what stuck with you from that conversation? I would say the conversations that we had about how important dance is and just like how it's invigorating and it's so much, it's so important, like both for the, an individual and for like the culture and community. And I've been thinking a lot about how she was putting on these events and it was, an, a, it was a fun thing and it was also an important thing. Um, and the context that I've been thinking about is that, like in terms of burnout, so I guess just like, even though she was doing this work that was so important and as I said, it just wasn't, it wasn't a big thing to her. The fact that I guess she was building community and had that around her would have really, really contributed to her not feeling that sense of burnout, I guess. Mm, which is really important. So she creates Systematic, you know, this great movement for queer women. Did you talk about the impact that that had on community and community groups? Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, she spoke about how people came to the night, came up to her and said that the night literally saved, um, saved, her li saved their lives. And yeah, just... At the time, there wasn't a lot to do for black lesbians and women. Yeah, and how it created a moment, I guess. Mm. You know, you're out in the world now. Do you think things have changed for black lesbian women, black queer women in the world? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot for us to do now. Yvonne did say that she found that the culture was maybe a little bit more cliquey than it used to be. And that... Back when she was doing systematic and I guess like in the 80s, people were kind of just like happy to meet everybody and I guess be authentic. And she says that she said that she found that people are or that they, like lesbian spaces can be more cliquey. And I think that I think I understand what she's saying. I understand where she's coming from. I think now that there's so much maybe um, in terms of things to do and also like social media and stuff like that and people have the ability to create themselves and really build themselves and build an image, it can seem quite, like, intimidating, I guess, going out into these spaces. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that Yvonne was involved in that you spoke about in your talk were, you know, like the Brixton Black Women's Centre and the Black Lesbian and Gay Centre. These are physical spaces where people gathered in community and connected. We don't necessarily have those today. We may have clubs and social venues... But does that absence impact on our lives? I suppose my question is, do we still need those physical spaces which aren't just about drinking and dancing, but about connecting, building community? Would you like a black lesbian and gay centre in 2022, 23? Yeah, no, definitely, 100%. Yeah, I feel like, especially uh, lesbian or like sapphic queer women spaces, don't tend to last long, but I think it would do a lot for communities to have a tangible space, something to hold on to, even just in the sense 
of knowing that it's there. I think, yeah, even just in terms of it just existing. I think that's really powerful that you say that, you know, because many of us may never actually go to a physical space like that, but just knowing it, that it exists in the world kind of is affirming for us, I believe. So, yeah, yeah. I, I'd agree with you on that. So you're a community organiser. You pull stuff together. How does the work that you do kind of relate to what Yvonne has done in the past and, and continues to do today? Tell me a little bit about what you do and how that fits in. Um, so at the moment, I'm holding these monthly events where people come together and speak like about um, a theme and it's just kind of like casual, like off the cuff um, storytelling rather than prepared pieces. Uh, the thinking around it was kind of building communities and finding people who have like um, similarities and people who can connect and they're kind of like creating a conversation, I guess. Um, and I guess the connection to what Yvonne was doing is that she was creating a space for communities and creating a space for conversation, but in a very different way. Yeah, she was bringing people together to kind of just like dance and to relax and to chill and to like let go and like a space away from work and all of that sort of stuff to just be free. Um, and I think... I'm trying to do something similar and like creating a space for people to have important conversations and connect with people in a way that they don't at work and find the people to make connections with because it can be really difficult. So we can clearly see that whilst lots of things have changed, that some things have really still remained the same. And I'm guessing they probably will do. You know, people will always want space to connect. They will always want a safe environment to be with people that are like them maybe outside of the commercial queer scene. So I think what you're creating is a direct line between what Yvonne did with Systematic and all the other things to where you are today. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. Is there anything else that you think has changed or has stayed the same? Um, I guess kind of just to reiterate what you were saying, yeah, the need for like representation and that being really, really affirming. Yeah, I think with what Systematic was doing, they were creating a space that was just saying that we are here and that we exist. And now even for me, um, and I'm sure for like my peers as well, like just knowing that we've been here um, as much as like people don't want to admit that um, and people want to kind of like, yeah, like <laughs> hide the fact that we ever existed. Uh, it's important to see that, to see those moments, I guess. I mean, it sounds like a really affirming, inspiring conversation that you had with Yvonne, and I'm glad you did it. Was there anything that was challenging for you in the conversation or challenged your thinking or your ideas? I wouldn't say challenging, but I guess I picked up on the fact that there were challenges um, that Yvonne faced in terms of building kind of collective spaces and there being, I guess, sort of like conflict between the more like academic and like political groups and then those who just wanted to, just wanted to dance, I guess. Um, and yeah, having that difficulty between like synthesizing the two groups and finding common ground, I guess. I mean, I'll be honest with you, those challenges persist to this day. We're always going to have people that want to party and enjoy life and those people on the front lines trying to create community. 
And I think the beautiful thing is that we can all coexist together. And that's what makes our community so wonderful. I've been your host, Mark Thompson. The reporter in this episode was Jewel Foster. You can find the picture we've discussed in today's episode and all the images talked about throughout this podcast on Instagram at Black and Gay Back in the Day. And drop us a message if you have something you want to submit to the archive. A link will be available in the show notes. Coming up next week on Black and Gay Back in the Day... Is this is all a waiting game? Is this what my life is meant to be? Just just waiting for a letter, waiting for a phone call, waiting for a response, waiting for someone to to hear my needs, not desires, what my needs are. I realize it's not even a question about us having a voice. It's a question about are they listening? Black and Gay Back in the Day is an Aunt Nell production based on the archive created by myself and Jason Okendaya. It is produced by Shivani Dave and Tash Walker, and the assistant producer is Abby McIntosh. Mixing was by Adam Smith, and the music was composed and performed by Amaru. Artwork was by Kemi Oliede. The executive producers were myself and the Art Nail team. Thanks to Content is Queen, The Glass House, The Audio Content Fund, Gadio, the Bishopsgate Institute and all of our contributors. A special thank you to all of those past and present who have fought for black queer liberation. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.